Um, we're going to be this morning in Psalm chapter 46. So if you have your Bibles, would you flip there with me? Um, as always, if you do not have a Bible or do not own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are Bibles on the back table. Um, let that be our gift to you. Um, yeah, if you, devices are allowed as well. Not as cool. It's a little bit more hip to use analog, but that's okay. So let's, uh, let's read Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, if we are not, I pray that you would help us to be thankful that we serve a God who wants to be known and who has given us this most precious and holy word we call the Bible. You want us to plumb the depths of it. You want to be known. The fact that the all-powerful, all-seeing, all-present, all-authoritative God wants to be known by creatures is astounding. I pray that we would honor you now in this time by employing our minds to the best of our ability to understand your word and to understand you as best we can and ask that your Holy Spirit would give our hearts because you have to give it. You, Lord, please give our hearts understanding and love for you. It's one thing to gather and to hear the preaching of the word and to sing songs and to do this thing we call church. It's another thing entirely to be transformed. And that is what I pray happens in this time by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning marks the third of our six-week series uh, on the attributes of God. We are studying the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, the traits of God. God, um, at least six of them. There, there are many more, but we are doing this. We're studying these attributes because, like I just kind of prayed, we want to better know and better understand 
who God is and what he is like. I've opened our gatherings with this a few times now. God says himself in Jeremiah chapter 9 that above all else, we ought to pursue knowing him and understanding him in order that we might better reflect him and worship him and love him because he has so loved us first. And I believe, we we believe that, that better knowing and understanding God's attributes as revealed in the Bible is foundational to better knowing and understanding who he is and what he's like. So we started out two weeks ago by looking at the holiness of God, God's attribute of holiness. And in that time, we considered how God is not like us, right? He is altogether different. He's altogether set apart, altogether separate and distinct in moral purity and in beauty and in power and everything else. And then last week we looked at the knowledge of God. And we saw in the text, Psalm 139, how he is both omniscient, that's the theological term for it, and and omnipresent. He is all knowing and all present. He knows absolutely everything there is to know about everything, and he is absolutely everywhere, present in, in all places, at all times, throughout all of history, from eternity past to present and eternity future. This is well above our pay grade to comprehend all of this, okay? And and we're going to continue with that above our pay grade theme this week as we look at the sovereignty of God, which you have to understand, we have to get this, that the sovereignty of God, like all the other attributes, is inextricably linked to all the other attributes of God. The, The Bible affirms what many of us might naturally conclude, which is, Because God is all-seeing and all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful, do we see how they're all inextricably linked? Because of this, he also possesses all authority, all control over everyone and everything in his universe. Because God is the author of all things, he has ultimate authority over all things. The sovereignty of God can be defined simply as the exercise of his supremacy. As theologian A.W. Pink writes, Because God is infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high. We see that wording in verse 4 of today's passage, the most high. Pink continues, Lord of heaven and earth. He is subject to none. He is influenced by none. He is absolutely independent. He does as he pleases only as he pleases, always as he pleases. That God is sovereign means what 
Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, flat out explicitly says, God does according to his will among the inhabitants of earth and heaven, and none can hold back his hand. God says of himself in Isaiah 46, verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come, and I say this, my purpose will stand, I will do all that I please. It's the sovereignty of God to which Paul is referring in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, when he writes that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now notice how the Bible does not say that God works some things or even most things. But rather the Bible explicitly states and the Bible offers us a God who is sovereign. He works all things. Somehow, in the great mysterious realm, he somehow works all things according to the counsel of his will. We serve a God who is in ultimate control over everything. The Bible offers us a God who is God. A God who is never not in control who is never thwarted by his enemies. He's never taken aback or taken off track or taken off guard. R.C. Sproul once explained it this way. There is not one single molecule in all the cosmos that is removed from God's ultimate control. Now this no doubt, brings to mind all sorts of festering questions. I get it. In a world scarred with events like the Holocaust and terrorist attacks and human trafficking and cancer, the probing question that is probably residing in most of our minds at this moment as we tackle this particular attribute is if the Bible is really true and if God really is sovereign, well, then he can't possibly be good and loving and just and trustworthy and praiseworthy. Not in a world where all of these tragedies are allowed to happen. Not on his watch. But what I think we see in Psalm chapter 46 is a God who is all of those things, good and loving and just and praiseworthy and trustworthy and sovereign. I think we see a God who is indeed unequivocally sovereign and unrelentingly good. In fact, I think that the big idea of the entire passage that we're looking at this morning, if I could summarize Psalm chapter 46 in one sentence, it is this, God's ultimate control is our ultimate comfort. God's ultimate control is our ultimate comfort. We're essentially going to be talking about 
Well, the results of what we're going to be talking about, it, it ends in our comfort, in our rest, in our well-being, and in our good. But we don't get there the way I think many of us anticipate. So for the remainder of our time, I'm simply going to break down that idea into two parts. That God's ultimate control is our ultimate comfort. I'm going to look at, we're going to have two points this morning. Number one, God's ultimate control as seen in Psalm 46. And then number two, our ultimate comfort as seen in Psalm 46. I'm just going to confess to you too that I have... Uh, wrestled, wrestled with this passage this week. And it's not because I don't know anything about the sovereignty of God. Of all of God's attributes that I've dedicated study time to, it's the sovereignty of God. And yet for some reason, maybe in God's humorous providence, uh, I am relying on him for every single word here in these next moments. So, So God, give me grace. Let's look at number one, God's ultimate control. So the backdrop of this psalm is is complete catastrophe. Right? It's it's theoretical, but the author is visioning a complete meltdown. In verse 2, he 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 draws up these images of the earth itself giving way. The mightiest of mountains, think Mount Everest, collapsing into the seas. Think about the fundamental structures of creation being literally pulled apart at the seams. And it doesn't stop there. That's just nature. He moves on to the nations. In verse 6, the psalmist imagines this mass rebellion of entire nations and the toppling of complete kingdoms. The scene that he is setting Uh, is basically what we see when all of the summer blockbuster hits hit the theaters. It is complete mayhem. It is the end of the world. We're really into those films right now. Like we're like, you know, Manhattan is just destroyed by this, you know, and everybody's running around. It's, it's It's a nightmare. That's what's going on. That's kind of the backdrop of this passage. It's a devastation of global proportion beyond anything that any of us have ever experienced. The situation in this psalm is is one that would challenge the faith of the strongest believer among us. It It would rattle us. And that is the point. The psalmist is saying that even in the midst of the worst possible event imaginable, we still needn't fear. Um, Every psalm is a song that was sung by the people of Israel, and every song, every good song, has a good chorus. And there is a chorus in this psalm. We see it. It's a repeated uh, frame in verse 7 and 11, that even though the worst possible event imaginable is happening, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the line that the psalmist wants to have stuck into our heads after we are done with this psalm. See, because he's omnipresent, God, as we learned last week, he is always near. And his presence alone, his being with us alone, is a tremendous source of comfort. Whether we are in the hospital room, or maybe like Paul was in Rome, we are in the courtroom 
Or maybe we are alone and riddled with anxiety and depression in our bedroom. The Lord's presence is a tremendous source of comfort. The Lord of hosts is indeed with us. But the Lord is not only present because the psalmist insists that he is also in control. He is the Lord of hosts. That term asserts his ultimate authority over any and all powers of the universe, whether nature or nations. We see in verse 9 that though the nations rage, God presides over them. He makes wars cease. He breaks and burns up the weapons of battle. And he establishes peace whenever and wherever he chooses because he is the most high, as we see in verse 4. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The same voice in Genesis chapter 1 that called the earth into existence is the same voice that has the power to silence its groanings. I think of Jesus in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and he just simply speaks and the storm ceases. That same voice we see melting the earth in, I believe it's verse 6, as the authority to do that. The same voice chimes in in verse 10, commanding our hearts that even in the midst of complete chaos, we are to be still and know that he is God. We're not to stir. We're to trust in the God who is in control. One of my all-time favorite Bible stories, uh, I've mentioned it many times, is, 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 is the great battle of 2 Chronicles 20 when, when King Jehoshaphat and all of the people of Judah are being surrounded by all of these enemy armies. They don't know what to do. It's certain death. They go before the Lord in prayer. They simply tell him, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God tells them tomorrow morning, dress for battle, go to the front of the line, but you will not have to fight because the battle is not yours, it is mine. And what do they do? They trust in his control. They dress for battle. All of the warriors are lined up and then King Jehoshaphat sends the worshipers to the front of the line as this display of trust and they go to the front and they just start worshiping. They don't... They don't pick up their spears. They worship. And God takes care of the enemy armies himself. Be still in those moments and know that I am God. In victories such as that and in seasons of peace that we are enjoying right now, at least for this time in America, in the provision of safety and sustenance and healing and help, it's a bit easier to believe in God's sovereignty and, and subscribe to this belief. 
Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above, writes James in chapter 1, verse 17 of the book of James. It's, it's easy to recite verses like this and believe that God is sovereign when the sun is shining or for the, for the tribe of Judah on that battlefield after God has confused the enemy armies and they've slaughtered themselves. But what about Psalm 46? What about in the catastrophes of life? in the things that don't seem good? What about in the defeats and in the diseases and the decay and the depression and the desolations? What do we believe about God's ultimate control in those things? And the psalmist writes a very perplexing line in in, in, in verse 8. He says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now, how, how can a sovereign God also be good and having some involvement in the desolations of earth? What we need to pause and consider before I go a moment further is that Scripture clearly teaches us that God himself is light and in him is no darkness at all. Scripture teaches us that God in his holiness is un able to sin. He cannot be tempted by evil and he does not tempt anyone else with evil because he's very good and everything he makes is very good. But on the converse end of that, we read in Romans 5.12 that death and disease and devastation came into the world through sin. And sin came into the world through man's rebellion, our turning our backs to God in the Garden of Eve and every uh, uh, Garden of Eden and everyday since. And so, death and disease and devastation have spread because all of us have sin. It came as a result of our sin, Adam's and Eve's and yours and mine. But the thing that the psalmist is recognizing here in verse eight is 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 God's passive will that that God despite our sin in the universe God is still God over his universe okay the sin that we brought into the universe is still ultimately subservient to him whether it's good or bad or ugly if something exists hear me out if something exists within God's universe he ultimately presides over it Because he's God. Good, bad, or ugly, everything that happens within God's universe ultimately happens, ultimately happens by his permission. He's God. If something happened without his ultimate permission, he would cease to be God. Now, I know this is a hard word. This is is a difficult word attribute and a difficult doctrine and a difficult text to grasp and it is okay that we wrestle with this it's okay but we need to remember that the psalmist is drawing our attention to God's ultimate control in order to stir up in us ultimate comfort so there's something here and we're going to try and unpack it that God is good, he is sovereign over all things, and it is, it, is, it is to our comfort that we believe this. Let's, for the remainder of our time, look at 
Point number two, our ultimate comfort. We've seen how God, demonstrated by the psalmist and in other passages of Scripture, is in ultimate control. But let's look at why it is to our comfort that he is. Another of my favorite Old Testament stories is the story of Joseph in Genesis, starting in Genesis 37 and going all the way through Genesis 50. You you might know the story. It's the son of Jacob. Jacob gives him this this coat of many colors, and he's, he's kind of bragging about it in front of his brothers, and his brothers beat him up and sell him into slavery. They live in Canaan, but sold into slavery. Joseph makes his way up to Egypt, where by God's providence, he, he raises up in power to being the second in command after a, a bunch of things happen. And in Canaan, there's a famine, and so the brothers who many years earlier sold him into slavery, they come up to Egypt asking for food and for relief and and who do they run into (laughs) but joseph and they don't know it right at the time and joseph helps them and 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 rescues them and they ultimately all end up in egypt and at the very end in, in in genesis chapter 50 the the big unveiling happens and the brothers see that this this powerful egyptian man who is helping them was was the brother that they beat and sold into slavery And what Joseph says is incredibly telling. He tells the brothers this. Brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended, catch that word, intended for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive. A perplexing line indeed. The, the Bible is filled with a litany of these examples. The Bible does not apologize for, for, for the fact that God is in ultimate control over all things at all times. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in Job. We see this in the book of Ruth when Naomi loses her husband and her two sons and everything. She's in a foreign land and she says in, in, in Ruth chapter 1 multiple times, the, the Lord has brought this upon me. Namely, the Lord has allowed this to happen to me. And this makes us uncomfortable. Even as I speak, it might make you angry as you think upon your own life. It makes us fester with even more and more questions Man, in a world of drug addiction and affliction and all these things, even when we understand that these are the natural results, these atrocities are the natural results of our own sin and rebellion against God, it still makes us angry and question that God would somehow in his sovereignty allow for such things, that he would allow the psalmist or he would allow Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, to be brought to the end of herself in her trials. But this is what I want to get across, and this is the source of our comfort. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that bringing Naomi to the end of herself in Ruth chapter 1 and bringing us, God allowing us to be brought to the end of ourselves in whatever catastrophes we face is the most gracious and loving thing he could do for us. I mean, just think through your life and the people that you know 
how many of us know people who have received salvation in Christ because of the woes of cancer? How many of us know people who have received salvation in Christ because of the hopelessness of their addiction? Now listen, I'm a finite father. I'm I'm a fleshly, humanly father, and I have before let my son Bray, when he was younger, climb up this little step stool about yay high. I've told him time and time again not to because he's going to get hurt. I let him do it. I watched. I let him do it, and I let him fall so that he would be saved from greater pain later on and trust my word. Now, if I'm a finite father, human and sinful, how much more is the sovereign God able to look down upon our struggles and trials and situations and say, for the good of their own soul being brought to realization that they need Christ, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this happen. It's their own sin that's causing this atrocity, but I will allow it, passively allow it, so that they call out to me and are saved from greater destruction later on. It's when we are our most vulnerable as humans, when we're backed into a corner, when we're out of options, when chaos, such as the chaos in Psalm 46, is just looming and we have nowhere else to turn, when the the pain of our situation becomes too much for us to bear ourselves, it is in that moment that God knows we are most likely to reach for him for refuge and strength and help, the very refuge and strength and help that is promised in verse 1 by the psalmist. It's in the very moment where we, like a besieged city, are being attacked on every side where we most cherish the secret river of life that flows up through the city and provides us with drink the river whose streams make glad the city of God when it is being pummeled. Sometimes what I'm proposing and what I believe the ultimate idea that the psalmist is going after, it's in our moments of most need and temporary suffering that God reveals to us his eternal blessing. See, the greatest tragedies of our lives are often the most laden with mercies from God because the scales of our blind eyes uh, can, can, can often only be removed by tears. Only when we are brought to the end of ourselves and everything around us, nature and nations are just in an upheaval, does God use this to bring us into something greater, namely salvation and sanctification and glorification in Christ. Guys, there is so much more that I'm not saying to God's attribute of sovereignty. But I wanted to go where the psalmist was going. And I, I, I hope that we see, and, and if we don't, I want to spend a moment in closing on this, that even if God were to allow something such as this, the mountains collapsing into the sea and all of the world just in a complete 
upheaval and nations everywhere rebelling. Even if, even if that were the case, we must see that because we have all rebelled and disobeyed and turned our backs to the holy creator God, church, we all deserve far worse for the cosmic treason that we have all participated in, each of us treating ourselves and living as if we were our own gods, we, we each deserve hell. And so when we look at a passage such as this, when we consider God's sovereignty over all things, including the events that bring us pain, and though we can't figure out all of the intricate answers, it's easy for us to get, it's, it, it, it's, it can be a frustrating thing to process and to, and to look at God as if he's playing this cruel chess match from on high. But when we start to fall into that temptation, we need to consider this, that he too has blood in the game. For every drop of blood that humans have shed because of our own sin, Jesus, his son, has shed more. If we were to read Isaiah 53 from top to bottom like we did during our Good Friday service, we would see, we would visualize what was done to the second member of the Godhead. God did not spare himself in all of the chaos of our rebellion but he gave himself up for the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus was like Joseph. He was a better, truer, fuller Joseph. He was beaten by his brothers and sold into slavery. He became a slave of our sin. And instead of being sent to Egypt, he was sent to the cross to die for our rebellion so that we can be forgiven and have right standing with the righteous God. And so the next time any of us, and maybe you're facing it this morning in your own life, if you feel like you can relate to Psalm 46, like everything is just spiraling and crashing down around you, and the next time you're tempted to think, oh my gosh, if the Lord were actually sovereign, there's no way he would allow any of this to happen. If he were good, he would not allow this to happen. If we are tempted to think down that road, we must remember Joseph, who God allowed him to be sold into slavery to bring about the salvation of many, to bring about good, we must remember Jesus the same way that though it looked like God was allowing him to be defeated, the victory was actually on the cross. The tragedies of our lives are laden with mysterious mercies for our good, God wants to transform us into the likeness of his son. And he's willing to do anything that that would happen. So what we can take from Psalm 46 is that God's people are not always promised easy, but we are promised good Only a God who is sovereign and good can resolutely promise each one of us this morning what Romans 8 says, that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
I'm a big Tim Keller fan, and, and, uh, and this quote has brought me lots of solace as I consider this passage and I consider what many of you families are going through and how not easy sometimes it is to, to spend time on God's attribute of sovereignty because we immediately go to all of the difficulties we're facing. But I want, I want to read you this quote. This is, my, this is probably my favorite. That right now, in this moment, and whenever you're in trial, think this, that God will only ever give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. Every moment of every day, God will only ever give us what we would be asking for if we knew everything we knew, uh, he knew. So if your family is in the midst of strife, if your job is in complete turmoil, if your finances are just on the fritz and you don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from, if there's a particular child that you're just grieving over, maybe a lost son or daughter, whatever it is that you're going through in this moment, we have to trust this promise that really is rooted in Romans chapter 8 that God is giving us right now. If we could only see what he sees, we would be asking that it happen because of what it's transforming us into. The, the, the likeness of Christ. With this in mind, we can actually obey verse 10. Be still, even when it seems that there is no way God is working. Be still and know that God is sovereign and he is there. And he will turn, it will work out for our good. That is a promise. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. God's ultimate control is our ultimate comfort. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I feel impressed to ask maybe more than ever before that you would give grace to my congregation, my brothers and sisters, and that you would help them to spit out any of the bones that they have just heard that are from me and that are errored. And I pray that they would, their hearts would savor the meat, the substance of Scripture that is truthful. And I pray, Lord, that we would come to appreciate this attribute of your sovereignty, that all good things come from the Father above. All good things. And what we can deduce from that is that everything that is given to us whether good or bad or difficult, whatever it is, is for our ultimate good, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So wherever we find ourselves this moment, though we are in maybe the valley of the shadow of death, God, let us hold fast to this refuge and this truth that you are in control, that you are good, and that you are working all things for our good because you have loved us and called us according to your purpose. Help us to know these things, to celebrate these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.